Amen. Well, good morning, church. <clears throat> I hope you're doing well today, that no matter how you're feeling or how your week's been, that you can be grateful this morning. We are in God's house. We are with God's family. We have the privilege to be able to sit under God's word. You know, it's our hope from the elders and our staff. It's our prayer that every week that you would get to come to church, that you would be encouraged through the preaching of the word, sitting with family, uh, and joining together in worship. And so um, we are thankful to be able to be together. And before we get to the word this morning, I want to spend just a few moments. I want to talk a lot longer about it, but I'm going to keep it condensed about the Mill Road Elementary School story. This is a story that needs to be told because this is a really uh, important uh, circumstance of of this church, A, a, a story that we as a church need to remember, and I get really excited telling it, so I warn you now. So, oh, it was probably two years ago the elders asked uh, for us to put together, we call it a strategic planning team of trustees and elders and staff. Uh, and then, and so we, we've been meeting as a team for the last two years to talk about buildings, to talk about the future, the vision, where we're going and our school and our church, how we use our properties. And so we've been meeting for a couple years. The guys that are on that team, Ryan Hostetter, Jared Greist, Carl Foyt, Jonathan, myself, and then recently one of our finance deacons, Adam Duryea. And so we've been trying to pray and to think about where this ministry is going. We were given a metal building, and so we, we had been looking at where can we put this big old thing? What do we, how much is it going to cost? How much time? That door shut at about the same time that we heard about Mill Road Elementary School. And it's a half a mile away. It's massive. We could get it right away. And pretty quickly, our team, the elders and the trustees thought, this is the best idea. Not only is it the best idea, it's the only idea we have. And it's probably the only idea that this church has ever had a unanimous vote for, twice, by the way. No one against it, everyone for it. And so it was pretty clear to our group and to the leadership that we really want this school. Um, And so as a strategic team, we've been planning how we're going to do it, what we're going to do. We had voted a couple weeks ago about raising how much we can spend on getting the building and equipping it, and that number was $2 million. And so that was the number we had decided. Well, the week, last week, before the vote, we had, we had decided as a team, we need to get together to figure out how much are we willing to spend to get the building, because we still have to outfit it, desks and computers and screens and tables. And so we can't spend all $2 million, though I really maybe want to, we have to pick a number that still allows us to outfit it, which is essentially going to be our last bid in the auction. And so we had that meeting uh, just a couple weeks ago. We all got together, and here come these guys, these great guys. Some are in the service, and they're smart guys. They have their spreadsheets and their numbers and all these Excel documents. I'm like, come on, guys, let's Let's just go get Mill Road. Because what we were trying to do was to come to some agreement about that number that would be our last bid. And 
And I appreciate the numbers. It was really good to see how much of a loan we want to take, how much money we have on hand to give towards the loan, how much of a, how much of a payment can we handle month to month. And, and we got kind of to the end of the meeting, and it was pretty clear that we didn't have consensus on what is our final bid. Uh, some of us were a little bit more aggressive. That would be me. And the, some of the others were a little bit more conservative in what we can do as a ministry. And I forget who it was. I think it was Jared said, well, let's, every, there was six of us. How about all six of us pick the number that we're comfortable with and we'll do an average. And I thought, that's a weird way to settle it. But that's what we did. We went around the table. We all had a number. You can guess what my number was. And we averaged those numbers together. And that number was the number in which we would not bid over that nobody else knew about except our little group. And that number was $1.785 million. So then we get to the auction. I was a nervous mess. I was, I was very nervous. You know, you walk into this, it was at Mill Road. Tons of people were there, okay? More than we anticipated, investors and all kinds of people, neighbors, but then people that looked serious enough that they could be participating in it. I'm like, you guys need to leave because we want to win this school. Well, the first school that came, the first property that came up to bid in the auction was Reams Elementary, and we were told all along that was the more desirable property, bigger, better, better location. And so we're anticipating all these people. They came for Reams, right? No. One bid, one person bidding against, bidding for the Reams property, which means everybody came from Mill Road. Or at least that's what I was thinking. And so they get to the Reams. They determine that it's not enough money. It just doesn't meet the minimum number that they need to sell the school. And so they take a recess and they come back and say, well, that's not enough to sell it. We're going to put this auction on hold, and we're going to go now to Mill Road. And of course, it was a lot more aggressive with the bids for Mill Road. Us and then another party that sat behind us uh, were actively bidding on the property. I forget what we started at, but the person behind us, I call them the guys in gray, they were wearing gray. They didn't blink an eye. They were not hesitating. They were not waiting around. They kept bidding. We so Adam Durier, our finance, one of our finance deacons, was doing our bidding. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for not making me do it because I would have kept going. Um, they did not stop bidding. They weren't hesitating. They bid, they bid, they bid, they bid, all the way up to 1.5 million. And for the first time, they hesitated. And the auctioneer said, we are going to take, so we were the top bid at 1.5. They said, we're going to take a recess. I thought, we won. We just won. This is over. Don't come back. And so, yeah, so they went and had a recess. They talked to the school board. And they came back and they said, determined that we've reached the threshold, but they decided they want to reopen the bidding. Like, worst idea ever. <laughs> they, they reopened the bidding. And, of course, the guys in gray... They had been talking to someone, texting someone, and so they've decided to get back into bidding. And again, I'm thinking, we don't have much farther that we can go. And so they start bidding. The, the auctioneer had said, we'll give you three warnings at some point in the next, before we end, before we sell the school to anyone. There'll be three final warnings. And he had given a couple at this last couple bids. 
they were going up by, I think, 10 or 20,000. And we got to 1.77 million. Adam made the bid. The third morning was, had just happened. But this was our last bid. So 1785, we're at 177. We will not be bidding again. Now, I might go and grab Adam's arm if I'm thinking, what am I going to do? And for this last warning, for, it felt like the longest five minutes of my life. Like the, the auctioneer is looking at the guys in the back saying, will you give anything above 1.7 or 1.87? Or, and he kept looking at him, keep asking over and over and over again. And I'm screaming inside. And finally, he says, sold to Mount Calvary Church. How cool is that? <clears throat> the last bid, the last bid, and it was pretty arbitrary that we decided to average our numbers together. It's like, what would have happened if one of us was just a little less in that average as we went around the table? Um, but it didn't happen because God is faithful and God provides, and God leads, and it was very clear in that room that this could not be more perfectly suited for our ministry here. I shouted out loud when we won. Everyone's like, what's going on over there? <laughs> I was overjoyed to see this all work together, and so I share that so that we can remember how God leads and how God provides, and so let's pray now for that, or thank God for that, and then we'll, we'll jump into the sermon. Father, thank you for today. And you are faithful. You're faithful and you lead and you provide and you care. You know, we, we've spent a lot of time, a lot of hours over many years praying and planning and strategizing. But when it comes down to it, it comes to, down to your faithfulness and your goodness to give us and to provide for us and lead for us. And so we say thank you. Thank you, God, for that auction, and thank you that there wasn't another bid, and that you led the whole thing perfectly, precisely, and made it really clear who is in charge here, and that's you. And so, God, we look at that. We want to remember that. We thank you for that, and God, we pray now for the future. You know, if you've provided to this point and led to this point, we know that you're going to lead in the future as we raise money and as we fill classrooms. God, we pray that you would be honored, that you would be faithful, just like you've always been. But we do offer, we ask for help, God, as we move forward with this new elementary school. We love you. We thank you for the grace that you show us. In your name we pray. Amen. To that end, we turn to the Word, 1 Samuel, the 25th chapter. So if you have a Bible and you can turn there. For the last six weeks, since 1 Samuel 19, we have been on this dramatic, exhausting, twisting and turning marathon chase between the rejected king, King Saul, who was pursuing and chasing after the king-in-waiting, the king that God is forging into a man after God's own heart, King David. And it's been six chapters. I went back and looked for the last, since chapter 19, we have been on this, this hunt with no stopping. But in 1 Samuel 25, we get a little break, a pause 
in the story of the chase. A pause from the relentlessness of King Saul. King Saul, it's refreshing. He's not even in the chapter until the very last verse. He's not even there. And so out of nowhere, completely unexpected, we are introduced to a new hero in the story. And it's not David, as you'll see why here in a few minutes when we read. Jonathan's not in the text this morning. He's absent. Samuel, maybe another hero that we've seen throughout, the, throughout 1 Samuel, we're told in the first verse that he's died. So he's not going to be the hero. But instead, it is the mighty Abigail. And you'll see when we read in just a minute, the text makes it very clear that Abigail is a powerhouse. I mean, reading the story, she reminds me of a mashup between Wonder Woman and my grandmother. I mean, she, she's incredible in this story. It's not even breakfast, and she hasn't even lifted a finger, and she has saved a whole village of men. And then she's, she's perfectly putting together this Maple, maple, shady maple-sized buffet on the backs of donkeys, and she's making it look beautiful and sending it off ahead of her. The men in this story are foolish. They're foolish. Nabal, her husband, is drunk and oblivious, clueless. David is explosive and uncontrollable, and Abigail is wise and compassionate and discerning, and she knows in her wisdom how to save both Nabal, her foolish husband, and David in his rage. She's expeditious and on the move in this chapter. Three times we'll see when we read, she's, on a hur- she's in a hurry. She makes haste. She's got people to save. She's got tasks to accomplish. She's got things to do, things to, things to finish, She is a boss. She's a woman of power and of persuasion. I mean, she's convincing David of what he needs to to do and how he needs to do it. She is godly. She knows the scripture. She knows David better than anyone else has known David in, in this entire story of 1 Samuel. She knows who he's going to be. She knows what does it mean to walk with the Lord. This, what a woman this is. What a hero she is, as we're introduced to her in this chapter. And so the question for us is, how does this story fit in in 1 Samuel? Why was the chase, which is going to continue next week, why was the chase interrupted with the story of Abigail? And then I think even the bigger question is, what does this story mean for us today? How do we fit in the story? Who, who are we to, to be like in this story? I mean, traditionally, Abigail uh, is a character that's, that's discussed at women's conferences, that wives and women need to aspire to be like Abigail. Sometimes you hear that this is the, the kind of woman that you want to marry for our single men, young men in the room, that this is the kind of person, the kind of checklist you want to have to describe the woman that you want to marry. Sometimes it's talked about as as a warning to being a foolish husband like Nabal. But but where do we fit? And and what does this mean for us? And so those are the questions that I I want to answer this morning as we read the story. 
It's a long story. We're going to read the whole chapter, but it's a good story. And so hopefully you can stay focused and engaged as I read the story. And then we'll pray. So verse 1. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in the house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down in the wilderness of Paran. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent 10 young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shears. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. They missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we have come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. And when David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to the men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master. And he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. We did not miss anything when we were in the fields, as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by night and by day. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. He is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Then Abigail made haste, took 200 loaves and two two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, five sayas of parched grain, a hundred clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now David had said, surely in vain have I guarded all this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servants speak in your ears and hear the word of your servants. 
Let not my Lord regard this worthless, this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is, is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from the blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord according to all the, all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me from this, from this day, from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until morning light. And in the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things. And his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When Nabal heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged the insult that I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept, me, kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal, Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. And when the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed down with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servant of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. Let's pray. Father, we pray now that as we look at this story, that you would open our, mi our mind and our eyes and our heart that we would see and hear from the, the teaching of your spirit through the truth of your word that our lives might be changed. God, help us to know why this is here, that it would change our lives, that we would leave this place this morning, passionate pursuers of your son, Jesus Christ. So help us, God. We need your help today. And we ask for it in the name of Christ. Amen. So the story has officially digressed. 
We're not on the path that we were on right at the beginning. We're introduced to a guy that we've not heard of. He is a rich guy named Nabal. The, t- the text tells us that he was very rich. While Saul had 3,000 men in the chapter before him, Nabal in this chapter has 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats. He's got grain. He's got wine. He has it all. He has everything he needs plus some. And it is time to shear the sheep. And in this culture, when it was time to shear the sheep, it was time for celebration. It was time for feasting. And so it is time for them, as they, they're ready to shear, to celebrate, to feast, to be thankful, and to be grateful. Well, at this same time, David and his mighty men had been patrolling this massive expanse of property that Nabal had had, and, it was, and they had been watching over his sheep. They had been watching over his shepherd. They have been protecting these people, these sheep, these shepherds from raiding armies. It was common for raiding armies, to see the property, to see the sheep, to see the shepherds, and to want to take, take that for themselves. But David and his men, apparently, had been protecting Nabal's sheep and his shepherds and his property. And so it makes, it makes a lot of sense that David, seeing what he has done for Nabal, would ask the common courtesy would be returned to him. I mean, we've been watching the sheep that you are about to celebrate. We've been protecting the men who are about to be shearing. Won't you let us join you and enjoy the feast that we've been helping provide for? So very common, basic hospitality, very normal way of asking for a favor to be returned. And then Nabal responds in verse 9. When David's young men came and they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited, and Nabal answered David's servant, who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their master. Shall I take my bread, my water, my meat that I've killed for my shears and give it to this guy? I don't even know who he is. What do you mean, who is David? I mean, how does Nabal not know who David is? I mean, they're still singing the songs about him. You look at Abigail's response later in the chapter. I mean, she knows a lot of information about David. How is it possible that Nabal doesn't know who David is? Some think that actually what he's saying here is not who is David, but who does David think he is? Who does David think he is? Why would I give him my things? And it's clear in his response here with the number of mys in verse 10. My bread, my water, my meat, my shears. My, 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 my. Here's a man who is selfish with power, selfish with money, selfish in every way, and his selfishness has blinded him to the work of, of God through this man named David. He is blind to what God is doing through David. And David sees this selfishness. He's told of this selfishness. And how does David respond? David loses it. He loses his mind. Verse 13. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. 
And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. Verse 21, surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male who belonged to him. I mean, what has happened to David? He has snapped. He has lost it. If you look early in the text when he sent the men to, to, to Nabal to ask about joining the feast, there was one word that in verse 6 that he repeated three times. Peace, peace, peace. David comes in peace. And now, what was the word that was repeated three times in verse 13? Sword, sword, sword. I mean, he has snapped. It is hard not to compare this David here with the David that we just talked about last chapter. Do you remember David in the cave? I mean, we, we put him on the pedestal. Look, he, he did not slay his enemy you remember verse 12 of chapter 24 when David makes this noble speech, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. I mean, he had every, t- every opportunity to avenge his enemy, Saul. And he says, nope, God is my avenger. God is the just and righteous judge. I will not take this for myself. I will love and respect and care for my enemy. And now, all of a sudden, chapter 25, what has happened to this David? He, he, he looks more like Saul in chapter 22 than David in chapter 24. Saul in chapter 22 was at Nob with the priest where he slaughtered the people. And this, this is what David is ready to do in his rage. David is ready to go and slaughter this entire community. He is living in this unbridled anger, and he is ready to to go and destroy. This isn't a role model. This isn't a man after God's own heart. We don't need statues of David. We don't need sight and sound plays after David. I mean, this, this guy is a monster here. He is ready to go and to destroy people. So what do we learn here? What do we see? That even David is capable of this. What do we see? Even good men, even the best men, they fall and they fail and they can completely screw it all up. All up. Even after spiritual victory. Even after the greatest spiritual victory. That's chapter 24. There can be devastating spiritual defeat in just a moment. And I think we can all relate to this. I can relate to this, that we can have spiritual victory. We can have positive worship and make spiritual ground in our walk with with Jesus. And in a moment, in a moment, we can snap As a pastor, I know this. I'm no David, okay? But I recognize that there, I can have really good moments that are followed by, in just a moment, really bad moments where my passions overcome me, 
where my anger overcomes me. And we all can see this in ourselves, that our, our worst version of ourselves is not far behind from our best. It's not far behind. And this, this is what we see with David, left to himself. He, he would make a, a big mistake. Left to himself, his passion and his rage would overcome, would overcome him. Left to himself, David would have followed the victory of the cave in chapter 24, and he would have followed it with massive, catastrophic defeat in chapter 25. But guess what? David wasn't left to himself. He wasn't left to himself. In comes the hero of the story. In comes Abigail, and she comes on a donkey, and she intervenes on behalf of both of, of Nabal and his men. So a servant must have told her everything, or that's what the, the text says. He comes to her, says, David has been looking after our men. Nabal just insulted him, and you know how your husband gets. You can't tell him anything. And she says, right, yep, that's how it goes. She says, quick, get a bunch of meat, get some wine, get some parched grain, get some raisins, get some fruit, make it nice, strap it to the donkeys, send them ahead of me, send them to David, go, 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 go. She is in a hurry and she is on the move. So she sends all this food to David. She comes afterward and what does she do? She intercedes. She steps in between. She steps out she steps out in, in, on behalf of, she advocates for her husband who is foolish and for her people who are clueless. And in this stepping out, in this interceding, she gives a speech. And it is the speech that is certainly the centerpiece of this chapter. Or it's the part of the chapter that kind of stands out. Look at how she does this. Like how would she intervene for her husband who's, who is truly foolish? Verse 24, she fell at his feet, David's feet, and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. She goes on, but the, the point is, she says, count my kindness, count my gift, count my innocence, and let that cover my husband's foolishness. She, do, she doesn't make an argument that her husband is innocent. No, he is a fool. But what she does say is, let my gift, this food, let my innocence be a covering over his selfishness. Let my selflessness be considered instead of his selfishness. And so she asks for forgiveness. She gives an offering. But notice, the text doesn't just have Abigail interceding on behalf of her foolish husband and the people. At this point in the conversation, she pivots and she begins to intercede and advocate for David himself. She starts to try to convince him that he should not be wicked and foolish in following his feelings, in following through with wiping out all the men of Nabal. And so she not only saves Nabal, but she saves David. She, she keeps him from incurring and committing this atrocity. And so look at how she does this in verse 25. 
For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. If men, if men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living and the care of the Lord your God. How does she, how does she intercede and save David from making this foolish decision, this wicked decision of destroying these men? She appeals to the promises of the future to impact David's decisions today. I mean, that's essentially, that's exactly what she does. David, think about where you're going. Think about the future. Let the future impact and, and persuade you on how to live and to decide right now in the moment. Verse 28, your house will be a sure house. She's saying, in the future, David, your house is secure. So why make a decision today that could change that? Verse 28, evil, evil men shall not find you as long as you live. David, you're not going to be defeated in the future. Verse 29, if men seek you, you are bound in the bundle of God. Now, that's a vivid way of describing it, what I, and probably just me, but when I hear the word bundle, what I think of was being at the hospital when my three little kiddos were born. And, and you know how they do it. When, they, when they're born, there's little pink and blue blankets and a little pink and blue hat that they put on. And those nurses are just incredible because they can wrap that little baby, swaddle that little baby with that blanket and tuck that blanket in so that they come out. It looks like a chipotle burrito, <laughs> like a little potato. And I remember specifically with my daughter, my first, when I was handed this little burrito, this little potato, like... I wanted to protect her. Like, I am responsible for this little girl. This little bundle is mine. And I remember just walking around the room so carefully. I remember going to the hospital and delivering Caroline. How, I mean, I was not, not reckless, but I mean, Breaking, we were in Dallas, Texas. I'm breaking the speed limit. We needed to get to the hospital and get to the hospital really fast. I didn't really understand how it all worked, but I, I thought we need to get there. And then the difference between on the way home, I'm taking this little bundle home. I was, I was ready to get a police escort, surround our cars, because we're going slow and we are taking our time because I have to protect her. But this is what this is what Abigail is saying. David, you are in the bundle of God's love. Why make a decision? Why make this decision when you know who you are and where you're going? You have this future, David. Don't, don't live in the moment. Live in faith in the future promises of God. Don't let your emotions dictate your decisions, get, behind, get outside of those emotions, transcend those emotions, and live with the future in your mind for today. This is very common application of, of the text in the New Testament. I mean, this is a very common principle. Set your mind on things above. You've been bought by the blood of Jesus, and you have a future home that's coming, 
a glory that is coming in Colossians. He talks about let the fact that this glory is coming impact what you set your mind on today. Don't set your mind on worthless things, but instead set your mind on things that are above. Let your decisions today be impacted by the future promise of who you're going to be. And this is what Abigail is doing. And guess what? It works. Not only does she step in between Nabal Nabal and David, she steps in between David and the righteous God, and she keeps David from making this wicked decision. What 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 does David say in verse 32 through 35? Blessed be God. God sent you to me to save me from making this awful decision. He calls her the restrainer. God has restrained me from this wickedness because of your intervention, because of your intervening. And then he worships. He worships. Blessed be God who saves me. And so where do we fit in all this? Where are you in the story here? I mean, are we... Are we Abigails? Is it the call for our women to be like Abigail, to be a powerhouse and to be bold and expeditious and crafty? Is this a call for our single guys to to make their checklist after the qualities of Abigail? Here's the problem with that application. If this is a message about If the whole message is be like Abigail or marry an Abigail, the problem is, is you're never going to find her. You're never going to find her. No one's going to be able to check all the boxes in this list. Guys, you're going to be single for a long time. We don't want that. right? She's in the chapter. Abigail is presented as flawless. I mean, she makes all the right decisions at the right time. She's persuasive. She's bold. She's confident. She's focused. She's godly. But who do we relate to in this passage? If it's not Abigail, I don't think that's the standard for us to be pursuing. Who is it that we relate to in this passage? Well, we've already said it. We're like David. We're like David. How quick on a Sunday afternoon your best, most godly version of yourself turns into your worst. How quick you're consumed with anger. You know, what was David so angry about? Like, what was it, David? You just bridled that anger in the cave. Why why now with another enemy? Well, David was consumed with respect and justice and pride. And the moment that that was threatened, he snapped. So the question is, we know this about ourselves. What consumes you? Is it your kids or your job or money or your reputation, your success? What is it that is so important to you that when it gets threatened, you snap and you have rage and you have anger and you lose it and you're nasty to people and you're cutthroat? Because this is the picture that we have of David, but this is is who we're like. And if we're not like David, some of us are like Nabal. You know, Nabal reminds me of the rich man in the parable of Luke 12. We won't read the parable, but... I mean, it, it sounds just like him. In, in Luke 12, the, the guy in the parable has, has everything. Land and money and property and wine. And, 
And he has a problem. You remember the problem he has? He doesn't, have enough, he doesn't have enough storehouses for all his grain, for all his crops. And what does he do? I'll just buy another one. I'll just build another one, build another one. It's no problem. He has no problems because money fixes all his problems. He has no need in his life, none at all. And then all of a sudden in the parable, he meets a problem. He says, one day you're going to have to, you have to meet with God. It says in verse 12 or 21, that this night the soul, your soul is required of you, fool. The things that you have prepared, whose will they be? Calls him fool, which is interesting because in Hebrew, Nabal, what does that mean? Fool. He calls him Nabal, Nabal. Your soul is required of you. You can't pay for this. Your money can't fix this. And so some of us are like this. We live as if God doesn't exist. We're just oblivious to God. I can fix all my problems. I've got money. I've got resources. I've got people. And I have no needs. Who is Jesus? Just like Nabal. Who is David? Who's Jesus? Who cares? What does it matter? So what do we need then? If, I, don't, I don't think the sermon or the text is saying we need to be like Abigail. What do we need? We need an Abigail. We need an Abigail. We need someone who's going to step in between us and God, to be our interposer, to be our interceder, to be our advocate. We need someone who will say to God what Abigail said to David about Nabal. You remember what she said? On me alone be the guilt. That's what we need. We need someone who will say that for us. And aren't we thankful that into our helplessness and at just the right time, God sent a boy from Bethlehem and he came from obscurity and he wasn't the hero we expected. He wasn't the hero expected, but there was greatness in him, and he came lowly. And he doesn't look like you'd expect him to look. He didn't come as a king, but a boy, a carpenter from Nazareth. And he came with the expeditiousness of Abigail. He was determined. He was determined. His eyes were set on Jerusalem and to the cross. He was going to fix our problem, and nothing was going to stop him. And like Abigail... He came humbly riding on a donkey. And like Abigail, he was surrounded by fools, but he was in complete control. He is our interceder. He is our advocate. He interposes himself for us. He went to the cross and took the full force of God's wrath so that you, you don't have to. And he does it for Nabal, and he does it for David. He does it for you, and he does it for me. And here's what's so incredible. Here's what, here's what I loved about this passage, is that we see that Abigail intercedes for the worst of men, and she intercedes for the best of men. And it's the same with Jesus. He intercedes for the best of men and the worst of men. For the Davids, I mean the David the man after God's own heart, king in waiting. He needed an interceder. But then also for the Nabal. He intercedes for the Pilots and the Peters. Trump 
and Biden and Putin and Billy Graham, for the pastor, for the convict, for the prostitute, for the nun, for the addicted, for the accomplished, for the rich, for the poor. You put the spectrum however you want to. Everyone, wherever you fall, if you feel like you're more like David or you feel more like Nabal or someone on this end, it doesn't matter. Jesus has interceded for you. You need intercession. Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so what do we do here? Well, I think the text gives us a clue about which direction to go as we consider how she intercedes for both these men. The clue is, be like David. David receives Abigail. What does Nabal do? He parties and he gets drunk. He's clueless. I mean, he has no idea what's going on. He, he has no understanding of who David is. But what does David do? He humbly receives the intercession of Abigail. And then he worships. And so for us today, for you, it's wherever you are, wherever you are, whether you're, you've been living as a fool or you've been living righteously, walking with Jesus the best of you can, wherever you are, hold on and believe in Jesus Christ as your interposer. See, your guilt is covered only in Jesus. And then when we recognize and believe that, then what do we do? We can rejoice like David rejoices. The text ends. Remember, peace, 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 sword, sword, sword. Well, David, at the end of the conversation, says, I can go in peace. Peace, because intercession has been made. I can live in peace. And we can worship, and we can be grateful, because we recognize, yes, we were in desperate need, yet God came and rescued us through Jesus. And so now we pray and we worship, and we take communion, remembering the cost of his intercession for us, and then we sing in worship. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that in our foolishness, you haven't left us. But like you did with David and Nabal, you've sent us someone to intercede on our behalf for our own wickedness, for my wickedness, for the, the decisions that I make that don't honor you, God, that you don't leave me in those decisions, but that you sent Jesus to forgive me and to give me new life. And so, God, I pray that as we sing these next couple songs, God, that we would consider the advocate that we have in Jesus and the cost it was for Jesus and the forgiveness that we have in him, and that it would just wash over us and empower us to live in this new life that we have in you. So God, as we sing, be honored in our words and in our hearts. Amen.